Good morning. Caught me trying to roll up my sleeves because I'm getting warm in here and didn't turn my mic on. It's good to have you guys here this morning. We're going to continue in our series on 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up, to open up to 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And uh, we started last week a new series called New Life. And uh, it is a series through the book of, of 2 Corinthians. And I think it's going to be uh, really a, a great blessing to, um, to all of you. And uh, to myself as well, it already has been as I uh, work through these passages myself. Um, how many of you guys are beach people? Raise your hand if you're a beach person. Yeah? I'm not, I'm not really a beach person. Like, I don't mind it once in a while. It's kind of fun from time to time. I'm not really, a, I'm more a mountain person. That's why I live in Colorado, right? Like it's, you know, I lived in Minnesota. There were beaches. I mean, I know they weren't ocean beaches, but there were beaches. There were lakes, you know, there was water. Um, but but I, I'm more of a mountain person, but... I, you know, I visited Florida and California, and, and uh, you guys ever gone out on a boat, like in a, in a bay or something in, in California, and seen all these gorgeous houses, right? And they're on these, uh, along the beach, and, and you kind of, you kind of, you drive as you're, as you're in the boat or whatever it is, a tourist boat perhaps, and, and, and you, you just look at, wow, how great would it be to, to, to live there, right? It's these mansions and all this stuff, and, and, and it's, it's gorgeous, and sometimes our eyes catch things, and we want things, and we don't really recognize uh, the reality. I just, I just want to show you some, some beach houses that, that I've got kind of caught on. We'll put on, on the screen there for you, some of the beach houses that uh, maybe we'll put on the screen. Yeah, there we go. There's, yeah, there's one, right? That, oh, yeah, that's good. The ocean's coming right up. We're going to go in their back door. That, that house is like going to fall off a cliff, you know, right? That one is falling off a cliff. I don't know. Maybe the beach isn't so great, I, you know? I don't know if you've ever, like, I've been out in the bay in, like, San Francisco, and, and, and there's literally houses like that where, where it looks like at any time that house could come crumbling down, Right? And uh, we can put a black screen up now, but um, you know we, we think about we think about these these houses and we look at them and and they might look gorgeous and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm I'm kind of a construction guy, like I have a little small piece of construction in my background, and and so I start to think about like foundations. That's what I think about, right? And I start to look at these gorgeous beach houses. And as a matter of fact, one time we were in. Um, uh, in, uh, in, in the Tampa, well, the St. Pete area, Clearwater Beach area. And uh, you guys remember Hulk Hogan, right? You know, for those of us a little older, he has this giant mansion along the beach and they're all like, oh, Hulk Hogan lives over here. And, well, this gorgeous place and, and all that kind of stuff. But, but I started to think about foundation. I'm like, I'm like, how deep do you have to drill in order to find a foundation that can actually support a house when you're that close to, that's what goes through my head. I start to think about that. And of course, you know, you, you think about, wow, it would be great to live on the beach and, until a hurricane comes. And then that's the last place in the world you want to be, right? And, and you begin to think about some of the things that come along with, with living on the beach. And you think about a house and building it on a foundation. And, and really, you begin to recognize that, well, the scenery might be beautiful for a time. The foundation's a little shaky, if you know what I mean. I mean, you are, you are at risk. And, and of course, here in Colorado, we have Bentonite. And, we, and those of you who maybe have been around and bought houses out here in Bentonite, and you go into a house and you're like, why is this gorgeous house so cheap? And then you go in and you look at, oh, it's built on Bentonite and the foundation's cracked and you got all kinds of issues, right? 
And, and, and we, we have that in different ways here in Colorado, but the foundation is really super important. The foundation as you build a, as you build a house is important. Certainly the foundation of your life in other areas is important as well. We think about, uh, we think about you know, financial foundations. And some of us, maybe you, you know, kind of try to make safe, invest, good investments. We'll say good investments with your finances, right? And maybe try to do ones that are considered relatively safe. And real estate is often considered one of those, right? If you invest in real estate, you're probably going to be in good shape, right? And so for my wife and I, our first house was $44,000. Can you imagine that? I mean, I don't, I don't know, like 44, we, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, 44,000, our first house, $44,000, small town in Minnesota, small town in Minnesota, and you go down in the basement and literally like there were logs where your floor joists, you know, kind of thing, it was built in like, I don't know, 1904 or something like that. Uh, but we, we bought this house for $44,000, we sold it for more than that, I don't remember what it was, but you know, the prices went up, we we, we got some equity in our house. We sold it. We bought, a, we bought another house. We, we made it a little bit bigger down payment on the next one. And, and, you know, and then the same thing, right? You're kind of thinking, you know, kind of as you do this. Now, some of you are blessed. You, you, maybe you bought one house and you just live there forever. And, and that's great. We haven't been able to do that. But, but we, you know, we, we buy the next house. We make a nice down payment on it. We, and it creates some equity as we pay down the mortgage and things like that. And of course, the, the value of the, of the property goes up. And, and then you, and then in our case, we sell it again, <laughs> right? We've done this a few times, right? So, and you say, you think things are going pretty well and you, you start to make these moves and, um, and you think, wow, you know, it's, it's, how, how much equity? Oh, that's nice, you know? And then we bought a house in, in 2006 in Ham Lake, Minnesota. And uh, we paid about $200,000, even to saying $200,000 around here, like that sounds like a killer deal. But we paid $200,000 for it. And um, in 2006, and then in 2008, we were getting ready to move out, to, out here to Colorado. Some of you might remember what happened in 2008. Do you remember what happened in 2008? I mean, the real estate market went, I mean, you know, it was, it was like, it, I don't know. I can't come up with a good analogy. It tanked pretty hard, right? It tanked. As a matter of fact, we were moving out here to Denver, and uh, at that time in 2008, and as, as we got ready and we began to look at this house that we paid about $200,000 for, and probably at that time, we realized that our house that, was, that we paid $200,000 for was now probably worth about one hundred and twenty. dollars I don't know if you're very good at math, but that doesn't work so good. And all that equity and over all those years, all of a sudden, you know, those, one of those investments, if you will, you know, rather than pay rent, you pay a mortgage with the idea being that you pay that down, you get equity, that someday you really benefit from that. And, that, and that's just kind of the, the way you go about things. And all of a sudden that didn't work for us. That was not a good deal. You, you're supposed to, I don't know if you know this, but you're apparently supposed to buy low and sell high. And we just thought, well, let's try buying high and selling low. And, you know, we didn't, sell, we didn't sell at that time. We decided to hang on to it, and we rented the house out and things like that for a while. But even later when we did, we still didn't. We never got back before we sold that house, even though we kept it for a number of years. And, and, it, and it moved the right direction. It never got back up there. We ended up taking a loss on that. And the point is this, that, that you can try to make safe investments. You can try to do things that are, that are smart, that are safe in life. And thinking you're building a good foundation for yourself in the future. And you can't control what happens. There's, sometimes there's just nothing you can do. The stock market can crash right? The housing market can crash when you talk about finances. Relationships can go bad. 
Relationships that you thought would always be there, that you thought would be a foundation. As a matter of fact, my daughter and I just had a conversation about best friends last night, and she was asking me about best friends that I've had and things like that. People that you think you'll know the rest of your life will be your best friend forever might not be. Relational things happen, and difficulties happen, and all of a sudden, these things that you thought you would have, the foundation cracks, and sometimes it just flat out disintegrates. It's important to have a good foundation in your life. And sometimes we think if we just make the right decisions that things will work out just the way we plan, that everything's going to be okay, that life will just follow our little formula that we've come up with, that we've been taught perhaps by our parents or by the schools or by society or by culture, by whoever. Just follow this formula. And and sure, there are smart decisions and and bad decisions and and you should make smart ones. I'm not saying that none of these things matter. What I am saying is that even when you make the smart decisions, nothing's ever guaranteed. The foundation can still crack. The foundation can still disintegrate in your life unless you build it on the right thing. Paul, however, uh, he didn't have foundation problems because, well, he was a tent maker. You know that, right? But on a serious note, though, he did have a solid spiritual foundation because he built it on the right thing. And this becomes extremely important as he begins to interact with the church in Corinth. And, and if you kind of know the history and remember what happened, you know, we have 1 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians, right? Which indicates that there's a 1 Corinthians, which was also a letter to the church in Corinth. And, and Paul wrote that letter. And then he wrote another letter, that, a letter that we don't have between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But he references it, so we know it existed. We don't know, we don't know the details of what were in it. Some people think it probably had something to do with what is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there was this, uh, uh, an incestuous relationship and some church discipline things, and Paul was addressing those things and, and really kind of saying, hey, hey, church of Corinth, you need to get your house in order. Like, there's some things wrong. You've you got to fix this stuff. And so this... This letter that we don't have between 1st and 2nd Corinthians was, was a scathing letter. It was a letter of discipline. It was a letter, letter uh, of, of, hey, fix the stuff that's going wrong. Here's the stuff that's going wrong. You better fix it. Right? And Paul, and Paul writes this letter. And, and Paul wanted to visit the church in Corinth. And he had begun to make plans to do so. And then he decided not to. At least not at that time. Not at the time that he said, hey, maybe I'll come at this time and, and then I'll visit you. And so he begins to make these plans and then the plans change, right? And when politicians do this, we, what do we call that? Come on. Flip. Come on, you guys. Flip-flopping, right? Like, did you change it? My goodness. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday morning. Glad you're awake. Good to have you here at Grace. I'm going to start over. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to. Right? It's, we, flip, it's, we call it flip-flop, and they change their mind. And I'm going to do this, and then they don't do it. They do something else. Oh, he's a flip-flopper, right? This is what began to happen to Paul. The people in Corinth, perhaps influential people, maybe even it was some of these super, I put that in air quotes, right, super apostles that we're going to run into as we, as, as we get further in 2 Corinthians. Maybe it was some of them. They begin to cast doubt on Paul, on his character, on who he was, on his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. They begin to undercut his authority, undercut what he says, and, and question whether you can actually really trust him or not. And so they begin to say these things, to spread these rumors. And so Paul sees fit. He says, I got to write you another letter. 
And in, in 2 Corinthians, part of what he does in this letter is he actually begins to defend himself. Well, some are casting doubt on trust. They're, they're questioning, could, could Paul be trusted? And Paul defends himself in the, in the letter to Corinth this way, starting in, in verse 12 of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. It says this, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a great letter in the sense that, or a great, a great passage in the sense that there is conflict. Paul's integrity is being questioned. But his hope in the passage we just read is that, is that when we stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, when that day comes, that we will brag of each other, that he's hopeful for reconciliation. That's what he's hopeful for. But he begins to defend himself, and the first witness that Paul calls to his defense is his own conscience. Now, this can be misleading for us as we begin to think about this. Uh, when, we, when, when we are challenged, you know, whether it's in ministry or business or in other aspects of our life, our, con- our conscience can bear witness to us. But here's the thing. In our culture, when we begin to talk about our conscience, what we're often talking about is the lack of feelings of guilt. In other words, when we say my conscience is clear, what we're saying is I don't really have any feelings of guilt. We're kind of rephrasing that in a, in a more culturally relevant way, right? And so we, we, we might say, well, you know, somebody might attack us and say, hey, you're, you didn't do this right or you didn't do that right. We, and, and you might look at them and say, well, my conscience is clear. But can I just tell you something? That's not good enough. That's not what Paul's doing here, by the way. Because when our culture talks about conscience, we're, our culture is generally talking about kind of this, this emotional thing, right? This, this feeling of, of innocence, in other words, I just, I just feel innocent, and therefore I'm innocent. But that's not really true. We can convince ourselves of all kinds of things, can't we? I mean, we can manipulate our own minds. As a fact, we do it. That's, that's, that's called, you know, we call that like self-talk sometimes. We, we might use the word self-talk. I, I'm, I'm doing self-talk right now. What are you doing? You're convincing yourself of something. Whatever the self-talk is. Whatever the positive message you're talking. And I'm not saying those things aren't okay, and sometimes in some circumstances, depending on what you're saying to yourself, they can be good and helpful, right? But when it comes to something and you, maybe you've done something and you have done something wrong, you can still convince yourself that you haven't. We are masters at justifying our own wrongdoings to ourselves. We're masters at it. We're really, really good at it. And we can have done something wrong. Maybe we spread a rumor, and here's, here's a good example of, of one. Somebody's actually, you know, s- said this to me where one time, you know, somebody, somebody was saying something about me in a, in a context and it got back to me. And I, so I, I called them up and said, hey, let's have coffee. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk about this. And so I sat across the table from them. We had coffee. And, 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 and I said, hey, I, I heard that you said this. You know, is, it, is this true? And, and they're like, well, yeah, and here's how they justified it. And I've heard so many people, just not just one person, lots of people do this, right? What do we say? Well, it's nothing I wouldn't have said to you. Or it's nothing I wouldn't say to their face, right? But what's the problem? They didn't. 
They didn't say it to my face, right? It's not whether they were willing or not. The fact is they didn't, but they justified it in their own mind by saying, well, I would. I would say it to your face. Therefore, I'm justified in saying it to somebody else. What? See how we do that? Maybe some of you have even done that. You know what? I've done that. And I was wrong to do that. But I justified it in my own mind. I was clearing my conscience. Isn't that what I was doing? I was clearing my conscience as far as how the world understands conscience. But, the, but that's not what Scripture talks about when it's talking about conscience. When Paul calls as his first witness his conscience, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about removing the feelings of guilt from himself so that he can sleep better at night. That's not at all what Paul's referring to. Paul is talking about it in a completely different way. As a matter of fact, I would, I would suggest this, that the foundation of a clear conscience is God-given holiness and sincerity. The foundation of a clear conscience is God-given holiness and sincerity. This is, now I'm phrasing this in a very particular way for a very particular reason. A clear conscience is not simply the absence of guilty feelings and people are really good at deceiving themselves, right? Manipulating their own emotional state, justifying what they say or what they do so that they can look at somebody and say, well, my conscience is clear. People are good at that. And I read this text to you out of the NIV, and generally speaking, and just so you know, like I think the NIV is probably, for, the, for, the, for most people, the, the best translation you can use. So there's my recommendation in general, if you ever wonder, right? But it doesn't always convey the meaning in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the best ways. That's why we have different translations, right? They're all looking back at the original text, the Greek or the Hebrew, right? And they're doing the best they can, to convey in, in our language what Scripture says. And sometimes what happens in translation, you're getting a little lesson here. I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep. But sometimes what happens is, is in doing that, they want to be really faithful, and rightly so, they want to be really faithful to what the original text says, and so they give a really wooden translation that doesn't always communicate what's actually going on in the grammar of the original language, right? So in this particular case, I think the New Living Translation does a better job of communicating the, what's actually going on here in this particular text. And here's what, here's what it says. It says this, We can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. I could walk you through the grammar, but that's going to bore you. It's going to bore me too. So I'm not going to do that. Here's the point. The point is this, that when Paul writes this, he's basically saying this. He's saying, he's saying look, I, I've, I've reflected on my own actions. I've thought about how I've interacted with you. I've thought about the things I've said. I've thought about the accusations that you've leveled against me, right? I've thought about the things that, that you've accused me of. You, you're kind of saying I'm a flip-flopper. You're kind of saying, look, I, I say I'm going to do this, and then I don't do it. And, and, and that's your accusation to me, that I can't be trusted because I said I was going to come visit and I didn't come, come when I originally said I was going to come visit. The plans changed, and now you're accusing me of being fickle. You're be, wavering, whatever, whatever term you want to use. And that's your accusation. But I've taken time. I've considered your accusation. I've been reflective about it, which is often very good, right? That's a good thing to do when you're, when you, when you're critiqued, to go, is it valid? Paul's taken time to do this. And he's looked at his interaction with the church in Corinth, 
And he's thought about it. He's prayed about it. And here's the conclusion that he's come to. I have a clear conscience, but my conscience has a foundation in God-given holiness and sincerity. In other words, it's not something that, I've, that just comes from within me. I've evaluated myself, my behavior, the things I've done, the way I've interacted. I've evaluated that based on what God has given me. Based on the holiness that God has, has given me, based on what he has told me, based on, on, on the values and morals that God has presented, I believe that I've lived according to those things. And because I've lived according to those things, not the things that come from in me, but the things that come from outside of me, that come from God himself, I've lived according to those things, therefore my conscience is clear. Do you see the difference between those things? When we talk about conscience, it is a God-given thing. It is not something that we ourselves produce. We live in a culture that has gone so far off the deep end when it comes to this hyper-individualism. Everything comes from within, according to our culture. Morality comes from within. I mean, you know, Oprah's gone as far as saying, you're just, you're just kind of, you're, you're God yourself. Like, you, you are divine in, in and of yourself. She's said things like this over time, and I'm sorry if you love Oprah. I apologize. I don't know if you got a car from her or whatever the deal is, but, you know, if you love Oprah, that's fine. I don't, I don't care, but she's wrong on this, okay? Don't listen to her when she talks about spiritual things. She's wrong. She doesn't know what she's talking about. But if you want to go to her show and get a car, God bless you. Um, maybe you can get two, bring one back for me, okay? But here's the point. The point is this, that in our culture, we want to say that everything comes from within us, that I am, I am my own God. I'm the, I am the God of the universe, that I sit on the throne. This is the oldest sin there is, right? That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They wanted to put themselves on the, on the throne. They wanted to determine what was right and what was wrong. That's, that was the whole eating of the fruit thing. That was the, that's what that was all about. It was, it was about a hyper-individualism that we experience in a great deal today in our culture because there is nothing you can do or be that is considered wrong anymore. You just be you. You know, we, we say at the time, I, I'll, I'll do me, you do you, right? Eh, there's a place, maybe, from time to time. But there is a God that transcends us, that gives us our conscience. Our conscience does not come from us, it comes from God. But we like to manipulate it and remove those feelings of guilt so that we can look at people and say, I have a clear conscience, when in reality, our conscience is not clear. Because we don't get to clear it, God clears it. Understand the difference between those things? Our conscience must be based on God-given holiness and sincerity. And that is what Paul is talking about here. He is not saying, I don't feel guilty. What he's saying is, I am innocent because I have examined my life based on the God-given conscience, the God-given holiness that informs my conscience. That's what Paul is saying. The reality is this. We will be questioned in our dealings with people. If you follow Jesus, 
If you do the best you can to live according to his will, if you do everything you can to follow him and, and you apply that, not just here, by the way, we, we also live in a culture that goes, that, that says, hey, uh, you know, Francis Schaeffer used to talk about it as, as second level and, and first level kind of stuff. Like, like all your God stuff is up here on second level, but all your science stuff is on the first level. We live in a culture that wants to make those distinctions. All your God stuff, that's just your personal thing. You keep that to yourself. Well, I got to tell you, just, just to be clear, and I've said this a hundred times, I will say it 5,000 more. Your faith is not just personal. The faith in, that scripture talks about is very, very public. Jesus didn't die on the cross in private. He died on the cross in public. Our faith in Jesus Christ is not a private thing. It is a public thing. It is something we live out in every aspect of our life. That means tomorrow when you get up in the morning and you eat breakfast, your faith should be lived out as you eat breakfast. That means when you get in your car and you drive to work, God forgive me, this is where I struggle, right? In the car. That's where I sin the most, I think. Right? But I've got to find a way to repent <laughs> and to seek forgiveness and to live that out as I drive my car. When I go to work, and I know I work here, but if you, if you work somewhere else, if you, go, if you go to the gym and work out, you've got to live out your faith there. Right? If you go, if you go to work, you've got to live out your faith there. Your faith is not private. Whoever told you that, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Can I just be honest with you? Your faith is public, and it ought to be. That's how it's presented in Scripture. That's how we're supposed to live our faith, in public. It is not a private thing. And there isn't this, this idea, this upper story where you keep your faith up here, kind of personal, kind of out of the things that we really know are down here. Francis Schaeffer talked about those things. The point, the point is this, that the reality is that when you begin to live out your faith in, in a public way, you're going to be challenged, you're going to be questioned. I mean, I, I'm, I'm blown away all the time by uh, Chick-fil-A, right? I'm just blown away. You know, Truett Cathy, obviously, he was a believer, had, uh, loved, lo- loved Jesus, followed Jesus, designed his business to work in that way. They're closed on Sundays. I'm not sure that's biblical. That could be a sin. I'm pretty certain of that every time I get in the car and go drive to Chick-fil-A after church going, wow, I really want some Chick-fil-A, right? Like, how am I going to get my holy chicken if I don't have Chick-fil-A, right? I'm just saying, that, that, but he believed that they should be closed on Sunday. It's a good thing. I'm glad you guys laughed. It was intended to be funny, right? So, uh, but he closes on Sunday. He tries to operate his business in a, in a God-honoring way. That way that's what, and they are, they are lambasted all the time. And you know this. If you pay any attention to the media, they're, they're like, we're not going to let you in our city. We're not going to let you in our airport. We're not going le- to let you anywhere. You're, we're going to, you know, that whole thing, right? And there's this big battle and they're, they're, they're attacked constantly. And I'm not here to defend Chick-fil-A. I don't, I don't, that's not my point. My point is this, that when you live out your faith, your, your convictions based on scripture, based on the person of Jesus Christ, when you do that, you're gonna be attacked. Now here's the amazing thing. It's one thing for the world to attack you, for those people outside of Christianity, outside of the followers of Jesus to attack you, but Paul's writing this to who? The church in Corinth. This isn't to the world that's attacking them. This is to who? The church. Man, I don't know what it is, but we like to eat our own, don't we? We like to eat our own. The church in Corinth that, that, that Paul had invested in, that he had loved, the, the people that he had, he had told about Jesus, they were the ones, many of them, attacking him now. They're coming back at him. 
their spiritual father, and they come back at him. So not only will you be attacked by those outside the church, but you might be attacked by others inside the church. Like Paul's experiencing in 2 Corinthians. The reality is, if we do that, people will judge you. The question is, how do you respond to that? Can I just be honest? There's only one judge that matters, and it's not the person sitting next to you. Go ahead and elbow him. It's not the person sitting. That is not the judge. It's not the person in front of you. Don't hit him in the back of the head. It's not the person sitting behind you. Don't turn around and glare at them. Right? They're not the judge. There's one judge. It's God. That's it. So when Paul begins to make this argument that my conscience is clear, it is important to note that his conscience is not informed by what the church in Corinth thinks. It's not informed by what some other person thinks. It's informed by the God-given holiness and sincerity. And that's what it's informed by. In other words, when we live our lives and when we live it in our business, when we live it in our relationship with our parents or with our kids, with our neighbors, with, with whoever we live, it, live in relationship with, when we live it out in those relationships, it's not that other person that we should fear their judgment. It is only God's judgment that we should fear. It's his, his informing of our conscience that we should be considering. Not anybody else. The question is this, can you look at yourself in the mirror and honestly say you have a clear conscience in a biblical sense and that your conscience is informed by God-given holiness and sincerity? If you can do that, then you're on the good track. Paul's defense was not that he felt good about his actions or non-actions, but that he submitted to God-given holiness and sincerity. But God calls another witness. I mean, Paul calls another witness. God himself. It says this in verse 23. It says this, I call... God as my witness. Boy, that phrase sounds familiar. And I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did, that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. In other words, God, Paul says, I call my first witness is my conscience. My second witness is God himself. And as a matter of fact, we kind of use that phrase, didn't we? I said that sounds familiar. Because why? Because we say it. Because we say it all the time. When we really want somebody to believe something, what do we say? God is my witness. It happened. God is my witness. This is the truth, right? We, 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 maybe it's not a phrase used. It's not really a phrase I use, but I've heard it a lot. Plenty of people use it. God is my witness, right? Can I just be honest? You should be careful about what you ask God to witness to about you. Paul is doing something rather brave here. For, for some of us, it might be foolish, but for him, it's brave. Because he's calling God to be his witness. Because what does God see that none of the rest of us see? The heart. God doesn't only know what we do. He knows our heart. What does scripture say about the heart? Out of the heart call comes all kinds of wickedness. I know. We, those phrases, what, what do we always say? Follow your... Don't follow your heart. It's a bad idea. Your heart's wicked. Sorry. So is mine. Right? Except for when God redeems it. God purifies it. Then it's pure. But out of the heart comes all kinds of wickedness, right? Don't follow your heart. Don't, 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 don't just do what feels right. 
Okay, that's just dumb, right? Like in, in certain moments, anything can feel right. There's moments when, when killing my child feels right. You know what I'm saying, right? Praise Jesus that he's given me at least enough restraint not to do that. Don't follow your feelings. Don't follow your heart. That's not a good idea. That's not what we ought to be doing, right? But, but Paul calls God as his witness. He says, I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. In other words, here's what happened. Paul came along in this, this, he writes 1 Corinthians, then he writes another letter, a scathing letter, a disciplinary letter, saying, clean your room. Father Paul is telling child Corinth, clean your room. And you know what it's like when mom says, clean your room, and she gives you about two minutes before she walks in the door, and you're like, ah! Mom just walked in the door. And she didn't give me enough time to clean my room, right? That's what Paul was saying. He's saying, look, if I would have come when I said I wanted to come, I would have been on the footsteps of that letter that I sent you that said, clean your room. The reason I didn't come was for your benefit that you might have time to clean the room so that when I got there, we could rejoice together. See, Paul was being a good spiritual father to the church in Corinth by not coming. That's what he called God to witness to, was my intent was for your benefit. My my intent was that when I came, we could rejoice that God had worked, that redemption had taken place, that forgiveness had taken place, that the right things had been done, the room had been cleaned, and we could rejoice. That's what Paul was doing, and he calls God as his witness. Paul's intent was to spare the church in Corinth. In other words, he didn't want to send a scathing letter and then follow it immediately with a trip because his presence would be salt on the wound from the letter. Chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Corinthians says this. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came... I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with, my tears, with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. In other words, Paul says, I didn't want to pour salt on the wound, so I didn't come when I said. I wrote that letter, and I was, it was through tears, right? It's just like as parents, and when you have kids, and if you don't have kids yet, you can imagine on some level, but as a parent, you know intimately that moment when you're correcting your child, and it hurts you more than it hurts them, right? My mom always said that to me before she spanked me, by the way, and I still have PTSD from that. But the reality is this, that now I understand as a parent who has, who has raised one daughter and sent her off and handed her over to some other guy who can take care of her problems now, and, then, and, 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 a, and a son who's you know, in his teenage years now, having raised them, I understand that moment when, when it does hurt me more than it hurts them. I don't want to correct them, but I must in order to be a good father. And Paul's saying, that's what I was doing. I was loving you in the midst of the correction and the discipline. It was for your good. To have a clear conscience is good, but we must also find hope and security, right? Verse 18 of chapter 1, backing up a little bit from chapter 2 there, back up a few verses, says this, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, 
by me and Silas and Timothy was not yes and no, but in him, that's Jesus Christ, in him, in Jesus Christ, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul looks to the future here. He says, there is something better coming. It is going to be better than this world. There are troubles in this world. There's difficulties in this world. But there is something coming that is better. And he basically says, look, I wasn't being fickle. I wasn't wavering. I wasn't flip-flopping. I wasn't doing those things by not coming when I said I originally wanted to come. I was doing that as a good father because I love you as a spiritual father to you because I didn't want to pour salt on the wound and I had your best interest in mind. And so I put off my visit to you because of those things because I love you. So yes, my plans changed, but I'm not God. I am not sovereign. I do not know all things. I cannot see all the variables. I, I expressed a desire to come. He didn't really promise to come, by the way, but he did express a desire to come. They began to put plans together, but then the plans changed because the circumstances changed. Paul says, I wasn't being fickle. I was being a good father to you. But then he says this. I think this is really important. He refers to Jesus Christ and he says, in Jesus Christ, it's always yes. In other words, words, yes, I might make plans, right? James 5 talks about business people and they go, they they say, hey, I'm gonna go into this town or that town. I'm gonna gonna run my business. I'm gonna make my money. I'm gonna do these things. I have all these plans. But, But James says basically this. He says, you can make those plans, that's fine. But at the end of those plans should always be what? If God wills it. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, look, yeah, I'm making plans. I'm, I'm making plans. This is going to happen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to come to you. I'm going I'm to invest in you. I'm going to disciple you. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to be a good spiritual father. But it's always, if God wills it. But God always accomplishes his purpose. It's always yes. When God promises something, it's always yes. But it's not always just yes. It's always yes in who? Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. This is important. Paul's plans changed, but they didn't change because he's fickle, because he lied, because he was lazy, because he didn't love the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had completely missed the point. It was never about Paul and what he wanted. It was always according to the will of God. It is God who accomplishes his purposes. It is God, it, it is God how, who, who causes you and I to stand firm, and it is God who is in control of this universe. We can barely control what's immediately around us much less the universe. How much better to build your foundation of faith on the God who is sovereign over all things? Amen? The foundation of a godly life is found in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. You want a good spiritual foundation? That's it. Here's the reality. The people around you will let you down. They will fail you. I will fail you. Guess what? You'll fail me. 
because we're sinners in a broken world, redeemed by Jesus Christ, if we've put our faith and trust in him, right? But nevertheless, we live in a broken world. And nevertheless, we still battle sin. And nevertheless, we are not perfect this side of eternity. That is the promise yet to come. When there will be new heavens and a new earth, there will be no more dying, no more crying, no more sickness, no more all that stuff. That's yet to come. There will be perfect justice, but it's not here yet. It's yet to come. The foundation of a godly life is found in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. Oh, I've talked too long. Last Sunday, President Trump showed up at a church. I don't know if you heard about this. President Trump showed up at a church and uh, he showed up at this church and, and asked the pastor, uh, Pastor David um, Platt, who's fairly well known in Christian circles, and, um, and, uh, and, and David Platt had a decision to make. Do I pray for him? Do I bring him up on stage and stuff like that? I, I'm honestly not going to weigh in on that. I don't really, that's not, that's not the point. That's not why I bring it up. But the, the, the media, both Christian and non-Christian, got all kind of all in an uproar about the whole thing. And some people are, no, he should never do that. Some people are, he should absolutely do that. And then, they, you, know, you know, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, all that kind of stuff, right? I'm not going to weigh in on that this morning. But it caused me to start thinking as I, as I began to think about this whole debate. And, it, and it, it's kind of a fruitless debate, to be frank with you. But they were debating about this. And I started to think about, I started to think about it and, 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 it, and, it, and it dawned on me and I've thought this about a lot of other, other things but it dawned on me that the whole debate is about the wrong thing. It's totally about the wrong thing. Here's, here's the problem with the whole situation why everybody's all upset is because they're putting their faith in the wrong leader. I'm not talking about Trump himself. I'm talking about any political leader. I, I, Obama, Trump, Whoever comes next, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Can I just tell you something? You know what history is full of? World leaders who have failed. They all did. Even the ones in Scripture. They all failed. None of them brought salvation. None of them brought holiness. None of them brought redemption. None of them. Not a single one of them. And there's been a lot of them. As a matter of fact, more often, they probably, you know, I don't know about more often, we probably have to do study, but plenty of times, they've done a lot more harm than they've done good. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Because here's the truth. President Trump might win another election. He might not. But guess what? After that, he doesn't get to be president. You know what? We're going to have a new president. There's a new president coming. I don't know if you recognize this. I don't know if you know the rules, Right? But he doesn't get to stay president indefinitely. He is not going to be president forever. There's going to be another president. Guess what? He's going to fail to bring it too, right? In other words, I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying don't think about it. You ought to from a Christian perspective. You should totally do that. Here's what I'm telling you. That presidents change, world leaders change, even the ones who are presidents or kings or whatever, their whole life, monarchs, their whole life, they eventually die and another one comes. There's always going to be change. You know what doesn't change? God. That's the only thing that doesn't change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. You want to build a foundation for your life? Don't build it on politics. Please don't do that. Don't build it on programs. Don't build it on 
hoping that culture will somehow figure it out. Don't build it on, on how smart humanity is, that humanity is going to somehow bring about some utopia. There's only one that will bring about utopia. It is Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom here on earth. That's it. That's the only hope. That's the only eternal hope. Here's the point. In a shifting world, the only sure thing is the yes we have in Jesus Christ. In a shifting world, the only sure thing we have is a yes in Jesus Christ. The stock market goes up, the stock market goes down. Political leaders change, the housing market goes up, the housing market goes down. Yes, that's a personal one. Relationships are broken, poverty won't go away, injustices persist, the pursuit of equality leads to greater inequality, the brokenness of our world will not recede. We cannot win apart from Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, it is always yes and amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for your goodness, for Jesus Christ, for his ability not just to overcome injustices in this world, but his willingness to go to a cross, to pay the price, to shed his blood, to go to the grave, to rise again, that we might have eternal life that there will be justice, that there will be no poverty. We won't have to worry about the stock market or the housing market or any other market. We won't have to worry about any of that stuff because you are Jesus and you bring justice and wholeness and completeness in all things. You are the foundation that we build everything on. You will not crumble. You will not crack. And you never change. Lord, thank you for these things. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, your head's bowed and your eyes closed and you're going you know what? I have built my foundation on the wrong things. I've been looking to the wrong things to provide it. I need to look to Jesus. If that's you this morning, everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed and nobody's really looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything like that, but I do want to know who you are if that's you this morning because I want to pray for you. If that's you this morning, would you just, again, nobody's looking around, just slip up your hand and put it right back down so I can see it. see those hands go ahead and put those down dear God I thank you so much for those who have said I've been building my foundation on the wrong thing that they want to build their foundation on Jesus Christ the only one who is yes and amen all times and never changes God help us to navigate the changing shifting world not by putting our trust in anything of this world by putting, but by putting our trust in you in Jesus in the blood that was shed. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.